Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 956 with guest David Chappell. Recorded live Tuesday, February 25th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, we're here at the Computer History Museum in San Francisco on the last official stop of the 2013 uh, Modern Apps Road Trip. Mm-hmm. Although it's, yeah, format's very different, but uh, it's, yeah. yeah, I love the venue. It's awesome. It is a very cool venue. So at this event, it, it's sort of like more like a mini conference, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All day. And one of the speakers who just got off stage, our good friend, the very well-dressed David Chappell is here. Hi, David. Hi, it's great to be here. But before we talk to David, we have a few items of business to go through, starting with Better Know Framework. Awesome. Sorry, buddy, what do you got? All right. Well, um, as you know, I'm an audio geek, Mm -hmm. and uh, anybody who does any serious audio programming is probably using some low-latency audio library like Mm N-Audio, which I told you about. Since the last time we talked about N-Audio on the show, there have been two updates to it. And um, if you're going to do any kind of effects with audio, chances are you're not going to write those effects yourself. Like, you know, maybe you could do a simple delay, which is pretty simple to conceive of, right? You have data that's flowing in. At a certain point in time, you sort of repeat the data and lower the values of the of the numbers, right? Because higher the number, the louder the, the sample. So that's kind of easy to conceive of. But if you're doing anything serious, you know, chances are you're going to use some existing code. So wouldn't it be great if you could hook into the vast array of VST plugins? And plugins are this thing, if you, anybody's done any work with audio or video, that, uh, that you can buy off the shelf. And you just like we have plugins mm-hmm. in the, in the, the .NET space and sure. Visual Studio, the audio world has plugins too. And you can pull them up and do all sorts of crazy things to audio with them. So it'd be nice if you could hook those in. Well, uh, there is a library for uh, VST plugins for not only writing them but hosting them in .NET. And it's called VST.NET. And not only that, but I found a discussion on the CodePlex site for actually hooking them into an audio. Nice. So if you wanted to host a uh, VST plugin and access it within an audio stream so that you could, you know, actually access the reverb or the chorus or the crazy audio thing, mm-hmm. this is what you can do. So go to tinyurl.com slash nAudioVST. That brings you to vstnet.codeplex.com, but particularly right to this discussion where the solution to the problem was uh, fleshed out. Fantastic. Yeah, there you go. And um, uh, I brought that back to Mark Heath, the uh, the guy who wrote N-Audio, who said, nice find. Uh, in fact, um, Mark Heath has a Pluralsight course now on programming with N-Audio. Wow. So if anybody really wants to get uh, busy, do, and you can do all sorts of things with low latency audio, with... 
uh, even with uh, WinRT. So and the, the, this is the state of the art in doing any kind of audio programming on Windows and audio. And uh, VST.net looks like, now I haven't done this yet, but it looks like um, this, is, this is the way to host and even create your own VST plugins. So there you go. Awesome, dude. I love it. Yeah. It's cool stuff. And, you know, it's a kind of a niche thing, but if you're looking for a change of pace, have at it. That's it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 810, and that's the one we did at DevReach in Bulgaria last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost two years ago now. It's a long time ago. And that's what we did with, it was a panel discussion on architecture. We talked about Steve Smith and Miguel Castro and Charles Nurse, who's part of the DNN group. And this comment, you'll love this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from Timo Toivinen, and I hope I got his name right. And he says, Dear sirs, I salute you for covering a wide spectrum of topics on your show. I especially enjoy these architectural shows. I'd like to encourage you to cover an area that is notoriously academic and Stygian, case tools. Oh, boy. In the 90s, the promise was that within 20 years, software development could be modeled and automated, effectively rendering programmers obsolete. Oh, yeah. Well, it's 2012, and I'm still here typing the code, and my neck still hurts. I want the tooling to wake up and to do at least half the work. Are we there yet? How long do we have to wait? This is important since my massage bills are really quite large. Wow, you know, I has he been paying attention because, you know, people like Kathleen Dollard and uh, people who are uh, really into code generation and all of that stuff claim way more than 40%. Yeah, well, 50%. just the .NET framework in terms yeah. of just work taken off the plate. I think we're writing a lot less code than we used to. We're just yeah, with, doing more. With the, the entity time. framework. and Sure. I mean, there's so much stuff that's done well, for us Well, if you really now. want to go extreme, talk light switch. Yeah, right. right? There are some interesting pieces around this. But sure. uh, Timo continues, uh, I do most of my modeling with Visio using either UML or ORM, as in object role modeling, not object relational mapping. Right, right. But the automation often ends at the department printer. Mm. Maybe Terry Haplin could talk about this. He's the author of ORM, again, that's Object Role Modeling, and used to work at Microsoft. He ought to have a viewpoint on this, or maybe someone from the Agile or Design Model Driven Engineering Circles. Can Mm. one draw UML with Visual Studio Ultimate, but how about the code gen part? Can Mm. we actually get code to spit out of UML? I don't think we can. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone from the Visual Studio team could talk about this. And I take this challenge on to make sense of modeling and code gen tools and save a generation of coders from more work-related joint disorders. (laughs) And thanks again. And he has a little PS here. Uh, from, and he says, uh, P.S. I met Richard a few years back at the Basta conference in Germany. He was on his way to Munich and I recommended him to the Deutsche Museum, which is the largest technical museum in Europe. They have a cut open submarine there that has, spans two floors. I never knew if he actually got there. Well, did you? Why, yes, I did, sir. Uh, I Thank you very you much. I had a great time there. And I was, since it was music, I also got a chance to go to the BMW Museum and I saw a Jumo 004, the engine that powered the ME262 in World War II, which is very exciting stuff. It was oh, wow. actually built by the precursor to BMW. Wow. Uh, so, Timo, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app, just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, still releasing over 40 new courses a month and offering a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including complete coverage of ALM with Visual Studio and TFS. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And that brings us back to David. David Chappell is a principal of Chappell & Associates in San Fran, where we are. Through his speaking, writing, and consulting, he helps people around the world understand, use, and make better decisions about new technology. Uh, He's been a keynote speaker for more than 100 conferences and events on five continents, and his seminars have been attended by tens of thousands of IT leaders, architects, and developers in 45 countries. His books have been published in a dozen languages and used regularly in courses at MIT, ETH Zurich, and many other universities. It goes on and on and on. Needless to say, he's well qualified to be on this crazy show. (laughs) Also a member of Band on the Runtime, that long-forgotten band of... uh, well, you know. Run. Miscreants and misfits. Misfits. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Patterson, Don Box and the like, and uh, myself included. David Chappell, welcome. It's welcome great to, to be here. 
Great to have you. The, uh, the keynote that you just delivered uh, started with the idea that uh, IT people and developers in particular have to reset their defaults. What did you mean by that? What I mean is that when you think about how we do something, you're going to build a new app, for example. All of us have defaults. We have things we naturally fall back on. Yeah. A language, a tool, a process. We have to do this. Without defaults, you'd reinvent the world every time. You can't do that. You've got to have defaults. However, however, our world changes so fast that we have to regularly reset those defaults. And the point of my keynote was to talk about how this is one of those times for the kinds of apps we build and the kinds of processes, the ALM approach that we use to build those apps. Yeah, okay. And, it, you know, it seems like anytime we have a, a big paradigm shift for uh, developers, you know, that, that is the number one thing we have to do. Okay, what's the new normal now? And I think that's really what you're getting at. What's the new normal? Exactly. In fact, I love that phrase. Can I steal that? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah I, when you said defaults, I immediately thought scars. Yeah. I've been working with younger teams lately, and they've asked me, how do I get this old guy to yeah. actually start to use some of this new technology? Get rid of your old pain. Yeah. Why is he afraid of it? I said, well, you need to understand his scars. Yeah. You know, there's a reason he's afraid of those technologies, unhappy with those technologies, resisting those technologies. It comes from experience. So go find the scar. Well, I think that's true. That's a very good point. At the same time, I also think it's true that the older we get, the harder it is to change. Sure. It's just the way people are. Mm -hmm. And so I'm convinced that to have a lifelong career in this field, you just have to fight that natural tendency every single day of your life. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess the other part of this is you're always playing your playbook back. So you're trying to map each of these new technologies to old thinking. Well, that's exactly right. I think of that as the experience trap because mm -hmm. experience is only useful when the future is like the past. Right. That's right. If the yeah. future is not like the past, as it so often is not in our profession, Experience is actually misleading. It's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But there are many times, and no matter no matter what the future is, there are many times when the patterns do overlap. It's just the being smart about it means uh, what to filter out. You know what 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 can I see as being part of a pattern, and what is new, and what requires new thinking. It's true. It's just so darn hard to do. Who would have imagined? That in 2008, this little system called Android, which first appeared, would only, what, five, six years later, become the world's most widely used operating system. Right. Sure. That's astonishing. Yeah. And terribly, terribly fragmented. I was, I was looking at some stats here, something like 22,000 discrete versions of Android hardware combinations, of which the first 2,000 represent 50%. I was what could go wrong? <laughs> I was doing a crossword puzzle on the plane coming here and just to show how outdated crossword puzzles are only in, you know, whatever. Uh, it, and it was an alternative to windows and it was four letters. And at first Don't I was, tell me it was OS two. At first I was thinking it was like, uh, iMac maybe. <laughs> no, it was Unix. Oh my God. Holy man. Unix. There's a word you just don't hear anymore. But ta you reminded me of that, Richard, because you talk about fragmentation. I wonder if, is it okay to just call them all Android if they're so fragmented? But anyway, so back to your talk, David. You're, uh, th that, that's where you started with this talk. Yeah, the talk was really about two big default resets. The first one is in the kind of apps we build, the technology itself. The second was in the processes that we use to build those apps, the ALM approach. So the first part, uh, the argument is that we're now building devices and services apps, apps that must speak to not just web browsers, not just native Windows clients, of course, but to client code that runs on PCs, on notebooks, but also clients on tablets and phones and so on. So there's that devices thing. The fact that we've got all these devices out there, means that our server-side code can no longer spit out web pages or simple things. It's got to spit out services. These days, commonly RESTful services with JSON payloads. And so we're building devices and services apps. That was forced upon us by the rise of mobile devices. Those services apps, the server-side, more and more runs in the cloud, especially for very scalable applications. Mm -hmm. And so my argument here is the new default for many, not all, but many situations is a scalable cloud service running on Windows Azure or something else 
talking to all kinds of devices through services. Yeah, at least more than one device. At least more than one. Tell me, are there new apps people build anymore that aren't very specialized that can get away with talking to just a browser interface or just a phone? This, uh, a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but there's also still, I think we still see the cultural elements, right? Like the, there's still a very much a belief in the web side that says, just write it for the browser yeah. and make it run and it'll run everywhere. And those guys are wrong. Mm, I'm, I'm with I, you. So, you know what? There's so much misunderstanding about what web actually means that uh, to some people writing it for the browser means delivering an iPad app through a web interface. You know what I mean? The, I was listening to, uh, I believe it was Science Friday. And they were talking about the, the word cloud came up and was so misused several times. I wanted to just slap these people. They were using cloud and server interchangeably. Uh, you know, so, uh, uh, an internet server. So, so if it's on my cloud, this is what they were saying. If it's on my cloud and I wanted to send it to your cloud and I'm just, I just want to strangle these people. That's you know, so this painful. is what happens. They, they don't understand what web means. Yeah. You know? I mean, certainly in my talk, I talked about this, that, that there are scenarios where building your client as a portable, a JavaScript HTML5 app can make sense, mm -hmm. where the application's logic is mostly on the server mm -hmm. and your client isn't doing all that much. You can get away with a portable client. There are situations like that. Mm. But expect your users to not be as happy as if they have a native client for their phone, their tablet, whatever, and probably a browser as well. Uh, or even something like Xamarin, which I talked about as well, that tries to bridge that divide with some native code and some general code. Mm -hmm. Is this where experience actually supports as well? Because I remember watching Microsoft Multiplan get its clock cleaned by Lotus 123 back in the 80s because Multiplan was built to be cross-platform, to run on Apple and Atari and Amiga and IBM PC. And Lotus 123 came out built only for the IBM PC and it ran stupid fast and everybody used it. And nobody remembers Multiplan now. It's gone. And that's a good mm. point. Although I think there's a danger here for guys like us who are mm. fundamentally technology geeks to forget that what wins in the marketplace is so often a function not of technical things, but of business issues. Right. I would argue, for example, that the reason that Excel finally beat um, one, two, three. Lotus one, two, three was about marketing. It was about wrapping these things together into office. Right. It wasn't a technical issue. Mm -hmm. So these things are important, but I think often the defining factors in success or failure are not really about technology. They're about money. Yeah. Well, again, you get into hmm. what are the prices that we're paying? Like I, I felt like multiplan was beaten by one, two, three because really performance and that, that Microsoft made the mistake of not understanding that people will buy the machine for that service, for that particular product. Like they, there's a full stack commitment there. Uh, but you're, you're totally right. Excel went on different merits. But it was also, it was a recognition that it was a new market demand that we expected to have all those things. I mean, even Lotus was doing it with framework at the time. They just didn't do it quite as well. Well, these are hard issues. I mean, Facebook not long ago rewrote their mobile client yes. from JavaScript HTML5 to be native mm -hmm. just because people were doing more and more and more Facebook on mobile. And so having a great client was really That's important. That's because we complained too much and they were listening to .NET Rocks. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I am sure you are right. <laughs> we, we, we've we did amazing our share of complaint. That is a funny part of that, but that whole discussion. And if you're on mobile folks and the and the web space we've done some shows over on the tablet show about this as well that you can do responsive web design that's supposed to work in all these different form factors you can it's just hard mm -hmm. and, and things really aren't the same as right. a native app yeah and the interesting thing about this i think too is that when you build devices and services apps especially when the services piece runs in the cloud mm -hmm. you now have mechanisms available to you to do more frequent updates you can deploy code almost continuously into a service running on, for example, the Windows Azure PaaS technologies, cloud services. Right. You can deploy updates via the app stores or via other mechanisms uh, on mobile apps. And so this makes it possible to have new kinds of processes. So the shift in how we build apps, the move to devices and services, the new default, has also made a shift happen in how we build them, the processes we use. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, and we come to expect it too. I think that's one of the things that surprises folks is, you know, I doesn't, I lose my Kindle every other year or so. And the fact that I can just buy another one at a Best Buy, fire it out, sign in my account, and all my books are there right up to the last page I read. Which I think the average person doesn't even think about that. You know, Carl's always called it magic. He it is magic. talk about that. It's so good, you don't even notice. 
Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the classic Arthur C. Clarke it's, line, It's right? omnipresent. It's everywhere yeah. all the time. And that is a, uh, something, it's, it's an attribute that has been only given to gods yep. before Hollywood. Yep. The best technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Yep. Indistinguishable. But generally, whenever we think about magic, we think about shock and awe. And I am so, you know, just people blown away by it. And I think people just aren't blown away. They just expect it now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's where the challenge is for us as developers. This is, you know it's magic because you're enough of a wizard to know it's magic. The average person just takes it for granted it's going to work. They don't understand that you have to create magic to make that happen. You are right. Driving here this morning, I was annoyed at the GPS in my phone because it didn't choose exactly the best route. And I right. got somewhat lost. I was so annoyed. And then I thought, wait a minute. This is magic I'm using. <laughs> there are satellites up you, there. You've this gone is magic. To space and and I'm, I'm unhappy because it took me two blocks out of my way. <laughs> That's your classic here. Louis C.K. rant right there, yeah. right? <laughs> you realize that message just went to space and came back, and you're mad because it took two seconds longer. Yeah. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. But yeah. I think, think we're, we're build, you know, we have this obligation now to build this stuff, to, to actually make it work this way. And the services model is key to that. It is. Try to get as little as possible on the client. That's an interesting point. As little as possible on the client. That's a perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't think people would all agree. Depends on the app. Right. I mean, in particular, one thing that's very true today is that many, many users of many apps in many scenarios, not just games, business scenarios, expect their mobile client to work offline. Right. right. To work effectively yeah. offline. And that often requires putting a whole heck of a lot of code on the client. Right. And so as much as possible on the server, yeah, that's a good thing. But clients that work when they're disconnected, that's also a really good thing. Yeah. So typically you're talking about a, you know, some sort of data store because you've got, you know, the latest set of data that you're working on that has to, to go on the, on the client. Yep. You're talking about maybe images, you know, God forbid videos. You know, but uh, that that's the kind of stuff that takes up space when you have an offline scenario. Mm-hmm. It's the data, really, that you're talking about. It's the data, and it's the ability to have the data kept there, yeah. have enough of until it can be uploaded, and then have enough of what you really want there to make the application still useful. Right. If the app assumes it's all with connected to the cloud, to the services piece in the cloud, it's easy to build apps that are just useless without that connection. Right. Well, For example, a zip code database. Right. You yeah. Know, if you if you want to, if your app looks up zip codes. Uh, and they expect that behavior, you have to download that database. Right, right. I mean, the canonical example in a business context of a SaaS application, I would argue, is CRM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Customer relationship management. Yeah. And there, if I'm a sales guy out in the field with my phone, with my tablet, and I can't reach the server for some reason, I still want to have the critical stuff I need for this client call on my device. Right. I want to be able to enter information with the client call and have it synced later on. So having things that work disconnected can be really important. Well, it, it can be as simple as, you know, getting the data that you want, disconnecting, and then being able to just not have it crash while that data is on screen and being able to tab around in it. Yep, you know. yep. But it means the client is much more than a UI. Yeah. The client has some logic, some intelligence to mm. work with that data in useful ways. To deal sure. with this occasionally disconnected state. Yeah. Now, who was it that has that quote of, it was easier to make to put internet everywhere than it was to make a good disconnected client? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> who was that? <laughs> it's a good point. Because mm-hmm. it's really hard to build a good disconnected client. Like, that is not a trivial thing to pull off. Yeah, yep. especially if it's a retrofit. You know, well, if you design it from the get-go to be disconnected, it's much easier. But if what you have is just a UI, and you must then make that work disconnected, it's almost a new app. Yeah, it's a new app. Well, you're, and you're recreating all these services you put up in the cloud effectively on the phone. Yep. It's, it's, that's very hairy. Speaking of new apps, and I don't mean to totally wreck this conversation, but um, the healthcare.gov app that we like to throw stones at, turns out they were uh, charged with making a multilingual version of this. And they thought, hey, this can't be that hard. We just replaced the strings with, you know, no. Turns out they had to write a whole new app. So, and this is, this is what I was listening to this on NPR, the interviews with the guys who are writing it. They actually, it wasn't as easy for them as replacing a resource file with all the strings. They found they had to write a completely new application just to get, say, a Spanish version of the healthcare.gov app up or a French version. 
And you know the, that these are problems that we had solved in the .NET world in 1999, 2000. I got to tell you, well, we can throw stones at those guys, and certainly should in some contexts. Uh, when I read those stories in the paper, I just feel great sympathy for the yeah, folks writing yeah. the code, because the problem seems to be impossible. Given the delay in requirements, the changes in requirements, mm. what they were asked to do and the time they, they were given. They really were given a bum rap. They were. Bum, and bum I, I feel a great sympathy for those guys. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, David. And you, and you always have that two sides of, if you understand something, you realize it's impossible. And all those people running around making decisions that don't understand things think it's trivial. Yeah. And there's nothing in between. You know, they don't, they're not even close to, to the, to a, any sense of comprehension there. Mm. So maybe it, maybe just because of the architecture, the way it was thrown together, there was no resource file with strings. There were strings scattered all around, non-Unicode, probably. And there you go. Well, I'm still, I still feel like app. we've never done the show that really talked about internationalization. Deeply. Globalization, yeah. But, but the, the reality with internationalization is it's not just the strings. It's how thoughts are presented. Yeah, you know, you're you know, right about that. There's a different culture there. You're right. And you can't just, you know, we, we're living in this English-centric bias that just says it's all going to be laid out the same. And it's you're right. The same I, absolutely, way. Richard. We should we should do a, uh, however you want to call it, internationalization, localization, globalization. Right. Those are all words that have been used to describe this problem. We should get somebody who's done, it, done been, that. I keep looking for the guy Go who's through the, problem. the right guy for that story. That's a very challenging story. Yeah, you do yeah. that show when you're not in America sometime. Yeah. Find yeah. people who are not Americans because Americans have this enormous bias that, People are just learning English, really. And, and if they don't, then they can use English apps with strings replaced. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Like, it's hard to get away from that when you're in America. Yeah. But yeah. it's wrong. And even Microsoft has fallen victim to that. I mean, how many products were really built US only? And, they, and, and I think they do a better job of inter internationalization than just about anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at the diversity of languages that the operating systems are available in and so forth. Like, it's not a simple thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I've actually been on an, Arabic version of Windows, and you can't just look at a dialogue and go, I bet you that's that dialogue, and I can guess my way through it. It's completely different. Yeah, you're right. The way that information is presented could be completely different. I once uh, was given an Israeli template for PowerPoint to use for a conference in Tel Aviv, and I used that, and I wound up using that same deck for other things. Mm -hmm. And that template became a foundation of other things that I did, which cursed me for years because things kept going right to left and having all these Hebrew <laughs> issues. <laughs> Hebrew come back to hunt you. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. not a good choice on my part. That's very funny. Well, you know what time it is, Richard. Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to go left to right, right to left, and all around, and come back to haunt David Chapel forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I announce the winner, did you know mobile apps are dead? What? That's right. Mobile apps are dead. Watch as Telerik unveils what comes next. Are you stuck with tools and vendors that make you choose between native, hybrid, or a web-based approach? You no longer have to choose. Mobile apps are dead, and there is a new way forward. The new wave is all about building long-lasting and compelling cross-platform and multi-device apps that will forever transform mobile development for the better. Are you ready? Go to www.mobileappsaredead.com where you'll learn how to pick the right approach for each project, tackle the fragmented and dynamic mobile ecosystem, elevate your productivity and shorten time to market, and create compelling experiences across platforms and devices. Go to mobileappsaredead.com to watch the free online keynote from Telerik. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Awesome. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Peter G. Herrera. Congratulations, Peter. Peter just won a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's just about everything Telerik does in one box. It's a $2,000 value just for being fans of Carl and Richard. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. We've mm -hmm. done it for two years now, and uh, this year will be no different. David, we'd like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to drop right now on technology, anything at all, what would you buy? Hands down, a 3D printer. 
My 10-year-old daughter is deeply into American girl dolls. Oh, no. And I'm spending a small fortune every year buying her clothes and accessories and so on. She believes that a 3D printer would let her print whatever she wanted for her AG dolls. She's mistaken, but she believes this. Yeah. So nonetheless, I would get a 3D printer and do my darndest to find ways to print her that AG stuff. I actually saw a a piece, uh, a, a website piece on 3D printed clothing. That they were doing a fashion show with it, but it was still made from PLA, the the plastic that just was interlocking, so it was almost like chainmail in some parts of it. It was very pretty. I've seen those too. I yeah. think they're very cool. It's very interesting. Have you got a particular printer in mind? Not really. The market changes pretty darn fast. Yeah, keep going. Have you seen, I still like the MakerBot. I think pound for pound, those guys are are doing the right things. They keep making. You know, you talk about getting rid of assumptions, right? And and they keep making a new device and taking it on a new way. So it's it's been I, I appreciate a company who's just staying at it, although there are a few interesting you know getting away from dripping plastic very precisely into yeah. you know ultraviolet lasers that are hardening resins. It's it's this it's is just the beginning business. of yeah, fabrication, a, and uh, I hear people all the time talk about you know what we're really talking about is you know Star Trek replicators and exactly. transporters. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. Where, where we're going? T Earl Grey hot. Yeah, or just being able to take matter, convert it into data, and then back into matter. Yeah, you say that so like it's uh, easy. That's <laughs> really where we're going. I mean, that is the holy grail of this. I do, because uh, my wife's in the clothing industry, so I am really interested in that additive approach to clothing manufacture. Because right now, like every other manufacturing, clothing is still subtractive. You take a roll of cloth and you cut out pieces from it, and then you sew them together. So... How do we do that additively where you're actually like literally starting with the threads and just weave them into the clothing as one piece? Man, that's a great perspective. I never thought about clothing as additive or subtractive. And it's still subtractive. It actually is. Yeah. Can we get to an additive state? I don't That's know. right. Subtractive implies waste, doesn't it? It is. It is waste without a doubt. And very wasteful. It's one thing to take shavings of metal from a milled part. You melt those down again. But cut bits of cloth are garbage. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet, but uh, it's, you know, this is why we do the geek outs. Mm-hmm. I have <laughs> lists of research going on, and there is a section of, uh, you know, the additive manufacturing of clothing. This is something I'm always watching. Well, it can't come soon enough for my daughter. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. You started off this conversation with really wanting to talk about two pieces, right? Talk about how apps are different and also how they're made being different. So what's different about the way that we're making software now? The fact that the new default is devices and services apps Mm -hmm. means that we can update these things much more easily, much more effectively. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I build an app on Windows Azure, the services side, uh, Windows Azure Paths lets me update that app atomically, uh, more or less whenever I want. And, of course, app stores let me update the client side. So the devices and services model lets us do updates more rapidly. Mm-hmm. So what that means is is this. It means that the idea of continuous delivery in ALM becomes much more tractable. Mm. It even makes more sense because being able to deliver the results of every iteration, every sprint into production is meaningless if I'm shipping a box product every two years. Yeah. But if I've got a devices and services app where I really can, the mechanisms exist to let me do updates whenever I want – then having the results of each sprint going to production can make really good sense. And so that's that's the core example, I believe, of how the change in the new default app style, the move to devices and services, is also really impacting the default ALM style, where agile development, continuous delivery, is becoming the norm. But I feel like we've had that on the website for a long time now, that because it was all running on a server that we controlled – we were able to update it pretty much any time we want. You could certainly do that in the services model, that you could keep tweaking your service. True statement, true yeah. statement. At the same time, um, for ISVs, people who sell packaged software, mm-hmm. they have not really moved to SaaS applications, cloud-based mm-hmm. apps, right. until recently. Or, or the, and they've got to, or they're going to be disintermediated. It's pretty hard to sell a shrink-wrapped CRM product while Salesforce is out there. Mm. Microsoft is trying. Yeah, I mean, but they've also moved it to the cloud product too and and quite specifically pushed their customers to switch over to their cloud version. True. They sell both. Mm-hmm. I agree that people are going to want both. It's a tough issue. I've done a bunch of work with ISVs who are trying to move their business into the SaaS world. 
And it's hard. Mm-hmm. Sure is. Interestingly, it's not that hard technically. As you say, we run web apps for a long time. We right. can build scalable web apps. We can deploy code to them at regular intervals. We can do that stuff. The technology is not that hard. The huge thing for these poor ISVs is the business model. Sure. Mm. Because the way they price has to change, the way they sell has to change. Mm-hmm. It their revenue is. The, the revenue comes in so much more slowly yeah, that the break-even point is years further out with a SaaS app than typically than it is for an on-premises boxed app. Well, well and it, I, I think a lot of that comes back to something we talk about on the show a lot, Richard, which is people expect web to be free. And, you know, people expect web experiences to be free. They expect web anything that you can go do on the web to be free. Well, when you say people, Carl, you mean consumers. And yeah, consumers it, do, I think. Well, consumers are also go to work and use their computers at work. They do. But my experience, at least, has been that the buyers of business-oriented SaaS apps, which is where the big money is in so many of these things, yeah. they do not expect free because yeah. they know that they are replacing or using SaaS where the others would have bought a packaged application. Sure. And so they're used to paying. They like the idea of paying per user per month in most right. cases rather than buying a big license hoping they get their money out of it. At the same time, I do not see a lot of, of business users who say they want their business SaaS apps, their ERP system mm-hmm. uh, online to be free. Okay. Right. I guess you're right then. I am thinking of the consumers. And it, specifically, I was thinking of Office Online, you, uh, formerly known as Office 365, formerly known as whatever. Um, yeah. So um, this is a, you know, Microsoft's version of Office that is, that is online. And the, the revenue is, the revenue model is pretty much all practically free for consumers. And, you know, if you're just uh, uh, an end user of it, whereas, uh, you know, I guess a business user is going to, you know, the company, I suppose, is going to pay for office online. Well, one of the challenges here, I think, with that example specifically, is that that brand covers a huge range of things. Sure does. Some of which clearly you pay for, SharePoint Online. Yeah. Others of which, like the Office web apps, you can get more or less for free. Right. But those are pretty simple. And most yeah, and folks- compared to the the uh, compared to the installable versions, right. they right. are nowhere even close feature-wise. Right. And so how many people are replacing their installed local desktop version by using just those web-based apps? I would guess not a huge Not number. a huge lot. But, however, I had the interesting uh, experience this morning at breakfast. I had I do not have Office installed locally on my machine, and I needed to create a PDF file. And so I went to Office Online, and I created a Word document. And rather than being able to wrap text around an image, I, had to f- I figured out quickly that I had to create a table and put an image side-by-side side with text, you know, instead of inserting a text box like I'm used to in Word. I created a table, put an image on one side, put text on the other, and had limited formatting, but it was enough to get it done. And then instead of, you know, saving as PDF, I printed, and my local printer can print to a PDF file. So uh, it did work, and I was able to do all that without any Office installed. But but I did have to work around the limitations of the software. But the, the fact is, is that 20 minutes from inception to poking around to done and office wasn't installed well first of all you've got a windows machine with no office installed yeah. that's uncivilized <laughs> well it worked that's it what i'm worked, saying but it worked because carl you're a serious geek no offense yeah and, and the average Doesn't user would much rather just pay 99 bucks a year and have the installed desktop yeah i guess i just hadn't gotten around to it on this machine yeah yeah it is an, yeah, an interesting challenge to balance all these things. And it's the consumer versus the business side of this thing. I mean, the big change when you talk about paying per, you know, power per the hour kind of thing, per user per month, is now you go from CapEx of making a, a software acquisition that costs you thousands up front. And when you actually account for mm-hmm. it, it's sort of distributed over the years to OpEx, where it's literally just part of your expenses. You're right. And some CFOs love that. Yeah. Some CFOs prefer an OpEx model, but some don't. If you work in a model where your your IT costs are uh, what they are and your pricing, for example, can just be a function of your costs, utilities, really regulated, for instance, they hate this idea mm-hmm. of turning CapEx into OpEx because CapEx is important for setting their prices. Yes. Maybe the answer is, you know, before we can make that final calculation 
on our online spreadsheet, we have to watch a 30-second Activa video. <laughs> Maybe. Although, in my experience, enterprise users deeply resist advertising. Yeah, oh, sure. In, I in think all users deeply resist advertising. That's a good point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some are more motivated than others yeah, for that. it's true. So, the continuous delivery model, in my mind, breaks down once you involve an app store, because an app store has an you push to it, but it's going to take time before it gets approved and shows up in the store. True. You have a limited it, cadence there. But it's going to take a week, two weeks, right? Yeah. As opposed to new releases every 18 months. Right. So continuous does not really mean continuous. It often means every sprint. I mean, one way to think about it is, is like this, that in a classic agile model, what are you doing? You're doing the requirements, dev, test, iteration mm -hmm. over and over and over. When you're happy, you release. And then for a box product, maybe your next release is 18 months away. So you've got a little break here, and then you do more of this, then do a release 18 months later. But with devices and services apps, you're probably doing development, doing iterations, doing sprints continuously all the time. There is no notion of version one, version two. You're developing all the time. The sprints mm -hmm. run nonstop. And continuous delivery just means that you're able to release the results of any of those sprints when you decide it has business value to do so. Right. So the technology makes it possible, but the choice is driven by business requirements. Now, what if we have uh, a? What if we actually get a private store, you know, a private Windows store, for example, well, side on, on site? Right, sideloading yeah. allows you to do that. It's it's painful and expensive. It, well, if in some it becomes cases. unpainful, and let's say it's as easy as publishing to a store that we, and we did have an immediate sort of publish mechanism, then that would solve that problem. Wouldn't yeah. It? It would, although you got to ask yourself, do you in fact want to do updates more than every couple of weeks? You might want to, depending on the app, the situation. Yeah, and now, I mean, this is when I put my operations hat on. And so as an ops guy, when I'm an ops guy, what I like about DevOps is that bugs get fixed sooner. We're moving at a higher speed. You know, when Agile first came along and we went from this 18-month cycle to, say, a six-month cycle, which was a heck of an improvement. It's three times faster. We still, as an ops guy, I looked at and go, I can't wait six months for a major bug fix. We still have, and I hate slipstreaming stuff. I still want you to, I still want to test a lot up front before we deploy because the consequences of deployment are so big and we only do it twice a year. But as the pace goes up, as you get faster and faster and faster, I can lower the bar in some respects on testing because I can recover so quickly. Mm. Mm. So I'm working with a customer now who's pushing out four builds of the website a day. And the reason we got there was A-B testing for ads. Because we used to do, the you know, the marketers always want to go that fast. But we couldn't make development go that fast. And so they had a little CRM hung off the side of the website that allowed them to push new ads up. And about once a month, they broke the site. Because in the end, you're sticking new code onto pages and stuff goes wrong. The fix to that was... Don't do that again. Be very, <laughs> be very careful. But the real answer, if you're going to own your ALM problem, is it was an ALM problem and it needed to be tested and it needed to be part of the process and it needed to be part of the recovery cycle. And so going to four builds a day actually made that feasible, which to me was very profound from an ops perspective because we stopped thinking about rolling back. We always thought about rolling forward. We have a problem with that page. It'll be fixed in the next hour. And so it can actually be dealt with and part of a regular cycle. Yeah, that's a very good point. If something is hard for you, do it more often. Right. That's a Cockcroft's right. line. Right? That's a Zen thing, isn't it? Very Zen. Yeah. I think Cockcroft also said when we started waking up the developers at 3 a.m. for technical problems, a lot of technical problems went away. <laughs> Although the, I thought the Zen Cohen was sort of like <clears throat> if it's boring, do it more. And if it's still boring, keep doing it. You were right. That is the Zen Cohen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was a big John Cage fan for a long time, the musician. And he quotes that in his books. Nice. How much of this process of doing continuous delivery is tools and how much of it is culture? Interesting question. I'm not sure how to assign percentages there. Mm -hmm. um, it's both. It's both. Having the tools without the culture is not valuable. Right. Having the culture with no tools to do this is impossible. Right. So it's got to be some combination of both. Again, it's like DevOps, which is intimately tied to this whole idea. Mm -hmm. How much of DevOps is tools? How much is culture? I would argue that DevOps is more culture than tools. Continuous delivery is, I think, some of each. Right. 
I, I think no matter what, the culture needs to be there, but you can't manifest the culture without the tools to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, back when we were shipping box products every year and a half or two years, back when enterprises did new custom app releases every 18 months mm-hmm. or two years, you couldn't possibly do this. The mechanisms, the tools just weren't there to make this possible. Right. It's the move to devices and services apps that makes these kinds of tools valuable and thus makes this kind of culture even possible. Right. To being able to move fast in those pieces and distribute quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece that I think, and we certainly haven't talked about this on the ALM side, I don't know how much you get into it, is the monitoring side, actually knowing what's happening in production. Yeah. Key part of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Certainly. You know, another point I made in my keynote this morning that we haven't talked about yet is that ALM is so incredibly important. I think that very few organizations who are not software creators, not ISVs, appreciate how important ALM is. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about what companies do, they have business processes. Those business processes do whatever the company does. The most important of those processes are the ones that do unique things, idiosyncratic things, things that provide differentiation for the business. Mm -hmm. In the modern world, those differentiated business processes are all supported by custom apps. All of them. Mm -hmm. And those custom apps come from ALM. Right. So the ALM business process, how good you are at ALM, is fundamentally important to how good you are at differentiating your business. But tomorrow, if I'm flying on some some trip to Paris, I sit next to your firm CEO, and I ask them to list their most important business processes. Will he or she list ALM? Certainly not. Mm. They think in business terms, but they are mistaken Mm -hmm. because their key business processes that provide real value, differentiation, strategy, they depend on custom apps. How good you are at ALM is really important to how good you are at business. So software agility is business agility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And the people that pay software developers just don't appreciate this. They think that software guys are too technical, too geeky, take right. too few showers, make too many Star Trek jokes, whatever. But the reality <laughs> is that all of us are fundamental to business success. Or that what we do is is pre, pre-known, predefined, and uh, just do it the way you did it last time. And it'll work. And they, it'll work. They confuse what I think of as the utility aspects of IT with strategic aspects. Yeah. To me, utility IT means keeping the lights on, keeping email going, right. keeping the servers up. Yeah. Great. The strategic aspects, though, are all about building new apps that provide differentiated business value. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different things. If your CEO, your upper management, views IT solely through utility lens, they will wholly miss the huge value of strategic IT, which is mostly ALM. Well, and, and utility should be pushed off to the lowest bidder. You know, it's just stuff you can buy and, and let it run externally. And then anybody yeah, hanging on to being utility computing is waiting to be disintermediated. Probably a fair statement, although I'm not trying to agree with lowest bidder necessarily, right. but best outsourcer. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's what's happening. That's why we have, that's why uh, Azure is dropping its prices to yet again try to compete with Amazon. Yep. You know, they're they're racing to the bottom. Yep. Cloud platforms are very much a form of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. But I think of cloud platforms as providing a, a more granular kind of outsourcing. You no longer write these multi-year, multi-billion dollar contracts with major outsourcing firms. You break it apart. So the servers go to, say, Azure or Amazon. The services go to, I don't know, maybe an Accenture or an Infosys. Hmm. You no longer have to have a single outsourcer right. doing all this stuff. Sure. Nor is it probably a good idea. People thought it was for a long time. Yeah. I know very few companies that are happy with their large-scale outsourcing contracts. Right. It's always a battle point. But in some respects, that's almost a trap unto itself. You're always frustrated with the person who's dealing with hard problems that you don't understand. True. True. You know. With cloud services being so cheap, do you think it's uh, a crime not to be uh, duplicating in uh, with different providers? In other words... Uh, having one system running in Amazon, one in Azure, and f- for failover purposes? I don't know. Those are hard problems. Because you'd like to believe that your cloud providers, each of them, has enough redundancy to make that unnecessary. If the apps are built correctly... Well, the like internet does go down, though. That's the problem. Yeah, but if your internet connection, your local link is the issue, make that redundant. 
Uh, so I think these are these are complex issues. The answer depends on a bunch of things. Netflix, for example, runs only on Amazon, mm. but they run on Amazon all around the world after redundancy. Right. So I don't think you have to have different providers gotcha. to get that redundancy. I see. Okay. Well, this probably pretty nicely into I think the sort of closing statements you made around your your keynote. Yeah. What I talked about at the very end was something else that I don't think those of us who work in software think about enough, mm -hmm. which is that innovators in an era is defining technology are the people who create the future. Mm -hmm. And that technology changes. In 1800, it was steam power. Right. In the 1880s, electricity. 1920s, it was internal combustion engines. Today, it is manifestly clear that the defining technology of our era is software. And what that means is that all of us who work in software, all of us actually work in the most important profession in the world. Software yeah. is eating the world. Software is eating the world, says Mark Andreessen, and mm -hmm. he's right. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the eating. We make the world a better place every day by writing more code that does more useful things and makes everyone's life better. There's another big part that you said in that as well, which is that it's our responsibility to shake off the cruft of the old way, to, to actually keep moving forward. Yes. Reset our defaults. We began our conversation here mm -hmm. by talking about the value of experience and the dangers of experience. We began by talking about the need to reset your defaults. Exactly right. We have, I think, lots of responsibility. We are all, in this industry, important people. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us to bear that responsibility well, to be worthy of it, and when needed, to reset our defaults. Well said, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure being here. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a